Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is JB, and as you can tell from the background, I am not at Plum Creek Chapel uh, tonight. We had a, a pretty bad winter storm over the last 24 hours. In fact, last I checked, it was still snowing outside my office window. We got more than a foot here uh, where we live, and all up and down the Front Range and I-25, the roads were horrible. So uh, we just opted to do a live stream only uh, tonight rather than have people come out in this uh, treacherous weather and join us in person. Uh, but we are going to be continuing our look at the greatness of God. So glad to have you with us and appreciate you uh, tuning in tonight for our midweek uh, Bible study. I want to start with uh, just a couple of quick uh, announcements like we usually do, just updating you on some of the uh, resources that are available out there from this uh, past uh, week. And that includes a uh, podcast I did this morning, so hot off the press, if you will, uh, with uh, our good friend Randy. And uh, this has become one of our most highly anticipated podcasts each week. And uh, so that was just posted uh, earlier today. Uh, and we talked about called out of darkness and into light and uh, just talked about how important it is in these dark times for Christians uh, to be a light in this world. But we also, as usual with Randy, kind of gave an update on a lot of the geopolitical events happening, including some updates from uh, the conference in Davos with the World Economic Forum and all of the different uh, reports that are coming out of that. Uh, frightening stuff for sure. Uh, but of course, we know God is uh, in full control. We talked about Russia, Ukraine, uh, some of the, the digital currency type issues and other things. So I hope you'll check that out. Uh, excellent power-packed uh, podcast this morning. I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Randy. I want to mention again a couple of uh, events that are coming up, and I know those of you uh, here at home in the Plum Creek family uh, are aware of these, but we're always picking up uh, new listeners and want to remind uh, folks in the broader uh, Not By Works and Plum Creek family about uh, these opportunities in Florida. I'll be speaking February 18th and 19th in Claremont, Florida, a suburb, uh, well, not really a suburb, but uh, near Orlando, uh, on what is this world coming to, an overview of end times Bible prophecy. And so uh, that's going to be a great conference. I'll be speaking seven times over a Saturday and Sunday, and I'd uh, love to have you come out to that if you're in that area or really anywhere in the southeast. Uh, that conference uh, does require registration, although it's free. There's no ticket cost, but uh, they do encourage everyone to register so they can have a count. Um, and then uh, just a couple of weeks later, I've been invited to speak at the Orlando Prophecy Summit uh, at the uh, Florida Hotel in Orlando. And boy, I am uh, just so excited to be a part of that group and so thankful to uh, my friends at Prophecy Watchers for inviting me to participate you know, I was thinking about that list of speakers that you see on the screen there, you know, uh, L.A. Marzulli, Mondo Gonzalez, Billy Crone, Brandon Holthouse, Jeff Kinley, Nathan Jones from Lamb and Lion, Bill Salas, Don Perkins, Tom Hughes, many uh, more. And, um, you know, the fact that my name's even listed on that list reminds me of the old Sesame Street uh, program when I was a kid uh, uh, called Which One Doesn't Belong, you know, that little uh, episode that they would have there as part of Sesame Street. Well, by God's grace, uh, we've been invited to participate with them. A lot of those guys are heroes of mine that I've watched and looked up to for years. So thankful to be uh, part of that conference. But if you're in Orlando or anywhere in the area, I encourage you to register for that. That conference will be live streamed as well. Uh, there is a cost to live stream it, stream it and get the credentials. But you can learn all about it at Orlando Prophecy Summit. Dot com. And again, that's March 2nd 
through the fifth, 15 speakers, each of us speaking twice, and I'm really looking forward to that. Speaking of Bible prophecy, here at home, we're going to be starting Prophecy Night at Plum Creek Chapel, Tuesdays, uh, every Tuesday night uh, from uh, 6 to 7.30, starting January the 31st. So our midweek Wednesday service uh, will move from Wednesdays to Tuesdays. We've got two more tonight and next week, and then we'll start the Prophecy Night series, and that will be on Tuesday night. So I hope you'll mark your calendars for that. That, of course, will be live streamed, as always, uh, 6 o'clock Mountain Time. But if you're in the Denver metro area, I encourage you to come out uh, for that. Uh, always check out our podcast. We do uh, several a week. Uh, I mentioned the one this morning uh, with Randy. You can check that out at notbyworks.org slash podcasts. And want to remind you again of the uh, my latest books, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and Volume 2. I was talking to someone today, had a really neat conversation, about 30 minutes with a, a guy down in Atlanta, and uh, just uh, talking about some of the developments that are happening, and he wanted to get my take on uh, what's going on. Actually, he's not in Atlanta, he's in northern Georgia, but uh, same idea. But anyway, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org uh, to... Uh, uh, you know, check out those uh, books. So uh, this is the uh, seventh installment now of our uh, study of the greatness of God. And uh, of course, we're talking about the attributes of God, which are those distinguishing characteristics of God's divine nature that are the very essence of God. And I sort of, you know, selected uh, several, 14 total that we hope to get to by the end of next week, which is the last uh, week of this series, uh, 14 attributes of God. If you were taking a theology proper class, you'd take, uh, you would uh, study uh, many more, uh, but I kind of highlighted 14 that I think are uh, helpful and uh, meaningful to me and ones that I wanted, uh, you know, to kind of highlight in this series. So we talked about, uh, for example, the fact that God is eternal, uh, and, uh, and that was the first one we looked at. We talked about in Psalm 90, how Moses wrote, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And then we looked at God's self-existence. God is independent in his being, and he's completely dependent upon no one or nothing else. In fact, everything in the universe depends on God. God is the only one who is self-existent. Then thirdly, we looked at God's holiness, how he is set apart from all that is impure or unclean. And, uh, you know, that, uh, in fact, God is the standard uh, of holiness. Uh, he, he's more than just the absence of impurity. He is the standard of uh, purity. Then number four, we looked at God is immutable. Uh, Malachi the prophet said, for I am the Lord, I do not change. God is immutable. That's what immutable means. He never changes, which means, of course, he is completely reliable. We talked about uh, the infinitude of God, to use the fancy theological term. God is infinite. He's without boundaries or limits. He's not limited by his creation, not limited by time or space. Then we looked at God's omnipotence, that he is all-powerful and able to do anything consistent with his nature. God's power is not exercised randomly or capriciously, but according to his will. And we talked about how the word almighty is used only of God in the Bible. And then we said, because God is omnipotent, he has the power to accomplish what he said he would do. And that really excites me, especially when I think of end times Bible prophecy, because you know so much of the 
uh, you know, climactic things that the stage is being set for that we're headed towards uh, uh, very soon, I believe, as you see the stage being set, are pretty powerful supernatural things. And sometimes we become so blinded and discouraged by all the evil that's around us, we forget that we serve an omnipotent God who is fully capable of accomplishing what he said he would. Then we talked about number seven, which is God is omnipresent. There's no escaping God's presence. He is everywhere present at all times. And then uh, number eight was God is omniscient. He possesses absolute knowledge of all things actual and potential. Um, you know, he is, uh, he is, uh, he knows everything and he knows everything equally well, perfectly well. God cannot learn uh, because he knows everything. Uh, God's knowledge is intuitive. It's eternal. It's immediate. It's not based upon observation or uh, reason. And events from a human perspective that are uh, future uh, are an eternal present to God. And we talked about God's omniscience. And then uh, we looked at God's love a couple of uh, weeks ago. God's love describes his essential nature. You know, we said from First uh, John 4 that uh, God is love. And this is the love of God was manifested toward us, that God is not God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God is love, not an emotion. It's a sovereign and voluntary affection. Agape is the Greek word for unconditional love that, that describes the affection that God has toward us. Um, it's his divine nature, and it was God's love that moved him to help uh, rescue us from the predicament uh, that we got ourselves uh, into. And then last week, we looked at God's righteousness, and uh, that was really a great discussion. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, really appreciate the, the comments and questions. We have one of the greatest congregations I can imagine, really, on earth, uh, Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, you guys are gracious, you're loving, you're friendly, you've got great fellowship. Um, if any of our listeners ever find, if you ever find yourself in Denver and you don't come visit Plum Creek Chapel, you are uh, missing out. Uh, in fact, I got an email uh, this week uh, from someone who had listened to our message or watched the video from Sunday and they made a comment, boy, it sure sounds like you guys are a really fun close fellowship. And we are. And uh, But anyway, last week was really meaningful to me as we talked about God's righteousness. Um, it's the sum of all moral excellence that's found only in God. Uh, we talked about David's words in Psalm 11, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. The Lord is righteous. Uh, Daniel, the prophet, uh, in his prayer, put it this way, O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you. And because God is righteous, we have access to the standard of right and wrong. We never have to worry about a shifting standard. Uh, it, is, uh, it is reliable. And that brings us to what I want to talk about uh, tonight. And since we're not live and in person uh, where we can have uh, questions and answers and that type of thing, uh, I wanted to take a little more time to flesh this out. Uh, and uh, talk about the trustworthiness of God. So I really spent some time this week uh, in preparation uh, thinking about uh, God's trustworthiness and all that means to us. And 
you know, how faithful he is, that he can be trusted, he can be counted on to keep his word. And uh, I was thinking about, uh, you know, an experience uh, or a world event that I remember from my high school uh, days, and that took place uh, early on a Sunday morning, October 23rd, 1983. That was the day that two truck bombs struck buildings in Beirut that were housing American Marines and also some French service members. Uh, it was a peacekeeping mission during the Lebanese Civil War, and the attack shocked the world. It, it killed 307 uh, servicemen as they slept, including 241 U.S. Marines. It was one of the most tragic events during the Reagan presidency, and uh, I can still remember uh, the scenes on television as uh, the dazed survivors pulled uh, injured servicemen that had been trapped beneath the rubble. And there's an extraordinary story that may not, uh, you may not have heard that comes out of this attack uh, on the uh, Marine barracks in Beirut. And it's a story about Marine Corps Commandant Paul Kelly when he went to visit some of the wounded survivors in the Frankfurt, Germany hospital. Among them was Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton, who had been severely wounded in the incident. In fact, Nashton had so many tubes running in and out of his body that a witness said he looked more like a machine than a man, and yet he survived. And as uh, Commandant Kelly uh, approached Nashton, Nashton was struggling to move, he was racked with pain, and he motioned for a piece of paper and a pen, and he wrote a brief note, just two words, and passed it back to the commandant. And on the slip of paper were these two words, Semper Fi, the Latin motto of the Marine Corps, meaning forever faithful, forever faithful. And with those two words, Nashton spoke for the millions of Americans who have, through the years, sacrificed life and limb for their country in one way or another, because they remained faithful. And when I think about that story, I think about how much more the faithfulness of God should attract our attention and inspire us. See, God is consistent with himself. In a time, in these great last days of deception, when almost nothing can be counted on, it seems like every day you see examples of broken promises and lies upon lies. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. Truth, by definition, means agreement to that which is represented. You know, I talked about this uh, a few years ago in a message I did on entitled uh, Honesty is the Only Policy, and I kind of gave a biblical framework for what it means to lie. What is a lie, after all? Is it simply is a lie simply defined as saying something that you know to be false? Is that is that the limited definition of a lie? I don't think so. I mean, obviously, you know, if that were the case, then, you know, we would be committing a moral sin every time we held a surprise party for someone in our family and told them we weren't. Or every time a, a football team does a, a, a fake count or somehow tries to draw the enemy, you know, the opposing team off, you know, off sides. You know, they're saying something they know to be true. They're saying hut, hut, and they know they're not going to hike the ball. Or what about in the world of, uh, you know, spy, the spy world? 
Are we committing a moral sin because we don't tell uh, the Russians or the Chinese uh, what our plans are and where our vulnerable spots are? Of course not. So uh, you have to think through the definition of what it means to lie. And that's what I did in that a message called Honesty is the Only Policy. But uh, the textbook definition of truth, it simply means agreement to that which is represented. Uh, so when we say something, it should correspond, it's the correspondence view of truth, to what is real, to what is true. And God himself is all that he should be and all that he has revealed to us. He is completely and totally reliable. So if we look, for example, at Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, the upper room after he's uh, dismissed the disciples or praying there for the disciples, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, all of these attributes of God distinguish him from any other pagan god, little g, that mankind might come up with. Uh, you know, someone asked me recently to kind of summarize and trace the the story of the Bible, a grand meta-narrative of creation as revealed in God's Word. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. God began to reveal himself through the written Word uh, in 1446 B.C., some, you know, 2,600 years after creation and so we have 2,600 years of human history that didn't get recorded and, and revealed to us today until 1446 to 1406, the wilderness period of time when Moses was leading the children of Israel. But God's revealed word tells us the beginnings. That's why the book of Genesis uh, is first in the Bible. It's the book of beginnings. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the key to understanding the whole rest of the Bible. And so God you know, reveals to us uh, his story, if you will, the plan of the ages from creation to fall to redemption all the way to the, the you know, eternal state, the kingdom. But, you know, throughout human history, after mankind was created, as God spoke the world into existence, and remember we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about how mankind was made in the image of God and what that means, the Imago Dei. But along the way, mankind began to turn to false gods and began to worship idols and nature and all kinds of things. And of course, here we are 6,000 years after creation and, you know, the, the, the false gods are too many to count. And of course, Satan and his Luciferian accomplices are seeking to create God in the image of man. I'm going to be speaking on that subject in Tulsa in May later this year, the subject of transhumanism, creating God in the image of man. But you know, all of those pagan gods that mankind tries to create uh, are all false. They're untrustworthy. They're unreliable. You know, you remember the story uh, in the first Kings of uh, the prophets of Baal and how they were desperately pleading with their gods to bring rain. And of course, nothing happened. And yet God, as Elijah showed, was trustworthy. And even though the fire was was, uh, you know, the, the, the wood was all wet. God still brought fire because God's going to do what he said he's going to do. Um, in the book of Titus, uh, Paul begins in, in the opening letter there of that pastoral epistle with these words, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, 
God who cannot lie. You ought to underline that if you haven't already in your Bibles, or if you have a digital Bible, you ought to highlight it. Because, again, he connects here the trustworthiness of God to our eternal life. And this verse alone is all we need to prove the doctrine of eternal security. When God said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, he meant it. He's not a liar. He will not renege. So nothing I can do can somehow cause God to change his mind and, and prove himself to be a liar. And in the minute we trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, in that moment we become born again and we have this present gift of eternal life. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life the moment you believe in Jesus. And so a great passage here in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, which, by the way, is another reference that demonstrates the reality of something we talked about at length several weeks ago. Um, and we have this kind of ongoing discussion about it because it was really, a, I think, an edifying discussion. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ, though he died at a moment in time uh, on you know man's timeline, you know, in 33 AD, uh, humanly speaking, it's the blood atonement of Christ that pays the sins for all mankind, past, present, and future. That's the reason God can say here, and Paul can say under the inspiration of the Spirit, that God promised eternal life before time began because it's based on the shed blood of Christ. Um, so God cannot lie. Uh, he means what he says. He says what he means. That uh, reminds me of a, of a line from uh, Horton Hears a Who, that Dr. Seuss uh, book. Of course, the movie is precious. Uh, we've watched it a couple of times. Uh, really cute movie. But, uh, you know, th there's a line from Horton Hears a Who, I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. Well, I don't know if elephants really can be faithful. Maybe they can be in an animated motion picture, but God certainly is faithful 100%. And then I want to take some time to kind of look at one of the key passages that prove God's trustworthiness from Scripture. And it's a fascinating account. I teased this a little bit last week at the end of our midweek study. Uh, but it comes from the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 24. And even I think the casual student of Scripture is familiar with this uh, story that's filled with everything from uh, humor to just uh, awe-inspiring uh, reminders from God and, and uh, just a, pa a great passage. But the context here is uh, in Numbers. Uh, Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, and Balaam, the prophet, is speaking to uh, Balak, the king of Moab. And we'll get to the immediate context of the verse that you see on the screen there, Numbers 23, 19, in just a moment. But uh, let me give you some background, a really fascinating story. Balak was, of course, the king of Moab. He was scared to death by Israel's nearby uh, successes with neighboring lands. And so he was afraid that Israel was going to be coming for, for Moab. So he, 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 in desperation, he hires this very famous prophet named Balaam. Now, Balaam uh, became, as a result of this incident, a well-known example that God uses in Scripture to warn future generations, including us today, of the consequences of sin and, and not following God. The New Testament warns against the, quote, error of Balaam in Jude, and also the way of Balaam in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Balaam really is a, is a, a timeless example to everyone 
who knows God and yet turns their back on him. It reminds us, you know, to, to not grasp for the temporal selfish goods that, you know, the evil intent might tempt us toward and instead remain close to God. We see another reference to Balaam in Revelation chapter 2, the letters to the churches that Jesus wrote, the letter to Pergamos, talks about the wicked, quote, doctrine of Balaam. And that doctrine of Balaam is the teaching that leads God's people to indulge in the sins of the flesh as though God is indifferent. But God is not indifferent. God is uh, He's going to keep his word. So back to the story of Balaam. Uh, having defeated the Amorites and, and, and acquiring all the land from, according to Numbers, Arnon to Mount Hermon, that's what the text tells us in Numbers 22, the Israelites settled in the plains of Moab to prepare for the invasion of Canaan. They're getting ready. And uh, though they'd already passed by Moab in peace and shown no interest in attacking Moab, the, the sight of, of Israel on his borders alarmed Balak, the king. So he consults with his Midianite allies, and then he, he decides to send this entourage to visit the renowned prophet Balaam so that he could get Balaam to curse Israel. So the delegation from Balak goes to Balaam and offers this prophet wealth and honor and power if he would simply come to curse Israel. But God's will was very clear. Numbers 22, verse 12. God says to Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam refused the first delegation, but he gave in to the temptation uh, to all of the wealth and power and, 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 and monetary gifts that the delegation had promised the second time around. And he got permission from God to depart for Moab. And, and you can already tell, if you know the rest of the story, that God was going to you know, use this experience in Balaam's life to teach him a lesson. You know, you, you ask God for permission long enough, sometimes he'll give you what you want, even though he knows it's not in your best interest. But anyway, on this journey, you know, Balaam is going to see Balak, and uh, uh, God's told him, you know, don't curse Israel, but you can go, but you're going to bless Israel. But anyway, on the journey, the angel of the Lord, unseen by Balaam, appears and is seen only by the donkey. And uh, three times this poor donkey tries to avoid the angel, and Balaam can't see it, doesn't know what's going on, and Balaam gets angry, he starts beating the donkey. I mean, your heart goes out to this poor donkey. And by the way, I, I really do believe that animals uh, can sense spiritual presence and spiritual warfare more than we can. We've, we've seen this with uh, our dog, uh, Juno and our other dogs, but uh, particularly Juno, back in the day, we just had the one dog and we lived in the mountains. And, you know, there were times when uh, Juno would go bananas, just literally like berserk, running around, uh, you know, hyperventilating. And, and we would look outside thinking, well, there must be a mountain lion, there must be a bear, uh, which we've seen both of those on our properties. Uh, nothing, couldn't see anything. And, uh, you know, of course, we'll never know for sure, but we honestly believe there are times when there's a, some type of spiritual a presence that is unseen to us and uh, that our dogs uh, can, uh, you know, can recognize. Now, I don't know about cats. I don't know if cats have that spiritual uh, sensitivity or not, uh, but I know dogs do. But, uh, but anyway, back to Balaam. So, 
you know, Balaam's, you know, not sure what's going on with his donkey. Finally, Balaam's eyes are opened and he's, he's made aware of this angel and he, he realizes what's going on and he offers to return home, but he's ordered to continue on to Moab where he would speak, quote, only the word that I shall speak to you, as the, the God said to him through this angel of the Lord, Numbers 22, verse 35. So uh, Balak, the king, receives Balaam, the prophet, with great fanfare, great expectation. He leads uh, Balaam up to this high place, this Baal sanctuary, the false gods on the plain, where he could look down upon Israel. And after they offered the appropriate sacrifices, Balaam opens his mouth to speak, but the words that came forth were the words of the Lord, not in cursing, but in blessing. And a second and a third high place they, 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 they go to. Uh, and both times, again, um, contrary to what Balak was hoping to accomplish, Balaam pours forth blessings. So Balak becomes frustrated and enraged, and, and, and he, he tells Balaam, get out of here, You're, you know, be gone. And by the way, the quote that I'm getting up to, all of this is background for the quote that you see on the screen in, in Numbers 23, 19, comes from that second blessing of Balaam when they went to the second high place. But anyway, before Balaam departed, he proclaimed one more word from the Lord. And the famous prophecy that he gives told of a star, the symbol of a great king who would arise in Israel in the far off future days. Well, the sign of a star in connection with the promised King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Messiah, is found only here in Numbers, in this story of Balaam and Balak. It's significant that the wise men who later in Matthew 2 followed that star to Bethlehem came from the east, possibly the same area from which Balaam himself had come. So anyway, the defeated and humiliated prophet departs for home, but not to stay. He still got this selfish desire to, to get these gifts that Balak had promised him. So uh, he, convinced, he, he conceives of this plan whereby God himself would destroy Israel. Uh, so he, he let Balak send the young people from Moab to mingle with the Israelites, a problem Israel had again and again throughout their history, not staying, staying separated from the pagan cultures around them. Um, sounds familiar to what's going on in our world today with the church and the apostate church. But anyway, Balak you know, uh, would send these young people to Moab to mingle with the Israelites and draw them away from God uh, into the, the evil worship of Baal. And this plan that Balaam conceived of was highly successful, but it, the results didn't quite work out the way Balaam had planned because God's judgment came swiftly upon the people of Israel. And these uh, sinful Israelites were thoroughly cleansed from the congregation. And the Lord commanded Moses to smite Moab uh, for this attack, Numbers 25. And in that ensuing battle, the prophet Balaam was killed, falling in defeat, with those who had sought his aid. And so, you know, again, the story of Balaam is a, is a powerful testimony when we get our eyes off of God and become obsessed with doing things the fleshly way, as, as the, the Apostle John would call it, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So, all that to say, here's a key verse, uh, as Balaam the prophet 
in his second prophecy uh, that Balak requested uh, to try to get God to, to curse Israel, but uh, God wouldn't do it, says this. This is Balaam the prophet speaking to Balak. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? I mean, what a powerful testimony to the trustworthiness of God. I mean, just read that again. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son, <clears throat> a son of man that he should repent. See, that's what mankind does. We lie. We change our mind all the time. We go back on our word. But as Balaam said, has God said and will he not do? Has God spoken and will he not make good? And the required answer there is, indeed, he will make good. So again, we're talking here about God's trustworthiness, the 11th attribute in our survey of, of key attributes of God. Let's turn now to the New Testament. We see another great proof text for uh, the trustworthiness of God, and it comes from the first section of Romans. Remember, the book of Romans is a powerful uh, you know, testimony to God's uh, righteousness and God's ability to redeem uh Mankind. It starts in the first three chapters by outlining man's sinfulness and his need for a Savior. Chapters 4 and 5 describe God's provision for that Savior. Uh, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, chapters 6 through 8 then describe the life of the believer and the struggle that we have with the new man versus the old man and what the sanctification, the progressive sanctification process should be for believers. Chapters 9 through 11 address the issue of Israel. There were many Jews in Rome at that time, and uh, Paul is saying that in spite of the universal problem of mankind and the universal solution for mankind's problem, God still has a chosen nation. That nation is Israel, and he has a plan uh, for the future of Israel. Someday the deliverer is going to come out of Zion, and Israel will be delivered into their promised kingdom as the prophets of old said they would a long time ago. So chapters 9 through 11 is all about what about Israel and the future for national Israel. Chapters 9 through 11 essentially in one section refute all of replacement theology, all of amillennialism, and all of any false doctrine that suggests that uh, there's not a going to be a future earthly reign of Christ from Jerusalem in a rebuilt temple. And then uh, chapters 12 to 16, the last section of Romans, are all about practical admonition for the church and for the believers. Uh, but if you go back to the first section, in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul showed that God's judgment of all people is based upon his character rather than some ceremony or festivals and feasts. And he, in, in, the, in, in describing that, he kind of puts the Jew and the, and the Gentile on the same level regarding their standing before God. Yet, God himself also makes a distinction between Jews and Gentiles and their purpose in the plan of God. And in chapter 3, the first eight verses of Romans, chapter 3, Paul deals with this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And he did this so that there would be no question in the minds of his Jewish readers that they too, like the Gentiles that they so despised and looked down upon, were guilty before a holy God and they needed to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Uh, Romans 3, 1-8 affirms the continuing faithfulness of God to his covenant people. Because he's trustworthy, he will keep his promises, his unconditional covenant with Abraham that was reiterated with David and reiterated time and again through the prophets of old. 
Uh, Romans 3, 1 through 8 clarifies that God's faithfulness is no in no way precludes his judging sinful Jews. They don't get a pass, in other words. And so uh, we don't have time to go through the whole section, but in, in verses 1 through 8 of Romans 3, Paul asks four rhetorical questions that probably were on the mind of, of a Jewish listener uh, that might be objecting to what Paul is saying here, uh, because it was some pretty rough stuff in chapters 1 through 3. I mean, uh, any high and mighty Jew who thought he was all that because of his, you know, being, being a son of Abraham or a seed of Abraham uh, in terms of his heritage, uh, you know, gets knocked down a few notches. So he asks these rhetorical questions. I don't, uh, in, in chapter, in verse 1 here that you see on the screen, he says, if Jews and Gentiles are both guilty before God, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? In fact, specifically, what advantage is there in being circumcised? So Paul says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? And he answers his question, much in every way. See, the Old Testament regarded being a Jew and, and, and being circumcised as advantages in one's relationship to God. And they were. Uh, you know, they, you were part of God's covenant nation, his chosen nation. Uh, and so Paul says, yeah, there's many advantages to being a circumcised Jew. And he gives the most important one first. He says, chiefly, it's because to them were committed the oracles of God. That word oracles is the Greek word lagia, meaning the word of God or the, the revelation of God. And indeed, it's through the nation of Israel that God revealed his word to mankind. You know, through Moses and David and Isaiah and all of the great Jewish uh, prophets and writers of Scripture. So, you know, that's a pretty, you know, high claim, right? That's a pretty thing. That's something to be proud of, if you uh, will. And specifically, the Messianic prophecies came through the nation of Israel. That's the reason Jesus mentioned uh, that salvation is of the Jews, um, so we see this referred to again and again in the, in the New Testament. And here's one more example where God credits the Jewish people with being the conduit for God to reveal his self-revelation, his written word to mankind. Uh, this idea of committed, he says, chiefly because to them were committed this revelation of God, highlights Israel's responsibility to guard uh, and to advance this treasure of God's word. And then you get to uh, verses 3 and 4, where Paul's second question is this. You know, God's not going to forsake his promises to bless the nation because some of the Israelites proved unfaithful, is he? Is that what God's going to do? And, and this objection that Paul gives a voice to uh, basically reminds us that the promises of God that he had given to the Israelite uh, were unconditional. And this was another advantage that the Jews had. And by referring to the unbelief of, the, of, of some Jews, uh, Paul was, you know, looking at the root of their unfaithfulness to God. You know, he's saying, for example, of the generation that received the law at Sinai, only two adults proved faithful, Caleb and Joshua. Yet God brought the whole nation into Canaan, just as he promised he would, uh, though the unbelieving generation died in the wilderness. They didn't get to experience the blessings of, of Canaan. Uh, so basically, Paul says, you know, or he writes here again, the voice of the objector, what if some didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And Paul says, absolutely not. Certainly not there is the way the New King James translates. It's the Greek phrase, meganoita. It means far from it or may it never be. In other words, Paul is saying, 
God would, would remain true to his word to bless Israel just as he promised he would. In fact, he says God would be faithful even if everyone in Israel proved to be unfaithful. Not just if some proved unfaithful like it was in the days of the wilderness uh, with Joshua and Caleb. And he says, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. And that's another great proof text for the trustworthiness of God. And he goes on, by the way, I have an ellipsis there on the, uh, the, the, the screen. I didn't quote the rest of it because he goes on in verse 4 to quote David, King David, from Psalm 51, his great penitent psalm, uh, after he had committed murder and adultery. And, and in the passage there, he's just, you know, uh, reminding David's testimony is reminding us and the, in the original context in Psalm 51 and then by Paul's quotation here, the first century audience in Rome, that God's faithfulness after you know, David's unfaithfulness is a, is a historical example that God is true. God is trustworthy. God will be faithful. God didn't say to David, you blew it, so I'm canceling my promise to Israel. So indeed, you know, the unfaithfulness of some Jews does not abrogate in any way God's covenant with his chosen nation. And that's important theologically and eschatologically because, again, there are some false teachers today uh, who suggest that the church has replaced Israel and that God gave up on Israel because they rejected his son and therefore he, he canceled all his promises to them. But as we've talked about many times, um, you know, God's uh, God's word is, is, you know, faithful. You can count on it. He's not a liar. And he says, as long as there's sun and moon and stars in the heavens, uh, he's going to bring in his kingdom uh, someday. You know, a lot of people today, uh, you know, impugn uh, God's character by, you know, essentially taking advantage of God's grace. And they, they basically say, and this is kind of the point Paul is making in the broader context of the first three chapters of Romans, but they might have the attitude that, you know, God's character is going to excuse them for the consequences of their sins. In other words, they might say something like, well, God is love, so I know he'll be gracious to me and he's not going to punish me. Well, look, there's, you know, sins have consequences. And that's what Paul is saying here, you know, in an ultimate spiritual sense, the, the, the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. Or Romans 6, 23. Um, uh, you know, the wages of sin is death. And that means spiritually we're all separated from a holy God. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. We're all in the same boat. Uh, but of course, by faith, we can be declared righteous. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again. We can be declared righteous and have our sins forgiven and be given the gift of eternal life. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know there still won't be consequences for the practical effects of our sin, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we looked at James chapter two. So again, we're talking here about you know the the trustworthiness of God, and so many passages that talk about this. You know, Jesus prayed that you know said that God is the only true God. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus, God cannot lie. We looked at the story of Balaam and Balak, that God is a man, God is not a man, that he should lie. Or Paul's words in Romans, that God is true and every man a liar. So what are the implications of this attribute of God, God's trustworthiness? Well, 
we've kind of said it several different ways throughout our time together tonight. Because God is true, His Word is reliable. Uh, you know, we never have to wonder about some hidden meaning or agenda in God's Word. What He says, He means. He is forever faithful. Semper Fi, right? He's forever uh, faithful. And I don't know about you, uh, you know, this attribute coupled with all of the other ones really, you know, brings me a confidence that, uh, you know, this God I serve is not whimsical. Uh, he's not going to change his mind. You know, you ever find yourself uh, kind of thinking things could be too good to be true? You ever catch yourself saying that? I, I've experienced that a lot in, in our ministry journey, and I won't take the time to to bore you with, you know, some of our life details, but I tell you, it's been a journey, and we've experienced a lot of heartache, a lot of, you know, suffering. Um, I believe, uh, ultimately, it's a spiritual attack because our ministry from its very inception has been committed to the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, and whenever you take a stand for the gospel, you're going to come under attack. Now, obviously, some of the ups and downs in our life journey have been due to, you know, our own uh, poor choices and my, my failure of leadership, you know, as, as a, a father and a husband and those types of things. You know, it's not all that we're just victims. I mean, we make mistakes. Uh, but often, you know, we, we've been set back so many times in, in life and in ministry where something will come in and blow up that, you know, I, when, when God is blessing and we experience, you know, his favor and things are really going well, I, I always find myself wanting to look over my shoulder and wondering, hey, you know, what if? And it, it really, honestly, this is kind of a confession. It, it really is, is uh, an indictment on my lack of faith because, you know, I tend to, to, to think in terms of, okay, well, this might not last forever. And if it doesn't, I better have a plan B. You know, I better have st something, you know, stored up or this or that. But, you know, there's a sweet place in our relationship with God that is a place of trust. And, you know, in the last couple of years, the Lord's really been teaching me about that and, and drawing us closer to Him to just really recognize that God can be trusted. And that doesn't mean that everything's always going to be perfect. In fact, God's Word promises it won't. There, there's going to be trials and tribulations and heartache. But it, doesn't, but it does mean that God is trustworthy and that if we keep that attitude and keep trusting Him, uh, then I think, you know, the circumstances won't really matter. So let me encourage you. Uh, tonight to to rest in God's faithfulness to rest in his trustworthiness and uh, think about just you know what a great God uh, we serve so I don't have time to get into the 12th attribute of God which is we're going to talk about God is just um, and take a look at that but I think next week in our final um, installment of this series we ought to be able to get through the remaining three uh, God is just God is spirit and God is one, where we'll talk about uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Trinity and the, that key foundational doctrine. Uh, but with that, we'll call it a wrap for tonight. I appreciate your patience as you uh, joined us uh, by live stream tonight and not in person. I always hate to, to not be there in person uh, because it's, uh, it's just great to see everybody, to hug necks and, and say hello. But Lord willing and the weather permitting, we'll be back together again next Wednesday. And uh, don't forget to join us uh, Sunday if you're in the Denver area for Bible study at 9 o'clock 
Mountain Time and then worship at 10 o'clock. If you're live streaming, and we do have quite a few people across the country that live stream, uh, we should be back on the air again uh, next this coming Sunday, 9 o'clock, with our study of what lies ahead. And then we live stream the message only from our worship service. And that usually kicks off the live stream does about 1025. So thanks a bunch. God bless and have a great uh, rest of the week. We'll see you soon.